to the latest edition of Shoe Speak HR. Um, today you've got myself and Amy. Amy, how are you? Oh, hi Andy, I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. Good. I just noticed well, when I say Amy, I'm, I'm yeah. just referring to Amy Leach. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have to distinguish between yeah. the, the two Amys that I have done previously. So, um, yeah, so I mean, today what, what we're going to look at is the top liabilities that that we find when when we undertake due diligence exercises um either buying or selling businesses it's something that that amy and i do on a regular basis we support our uh, corporate colleagues um to look at a business either in advance of a sale or with a view to an acquisition um and and what we what we discussed amy and i the other day when we were planning our our podcast was that actually there, there are common um issues that that kind of arise in 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 most um due diligence exercises and, and and it's one of those things that actually we thought would be sensible to share because it doesn't matter what stage uh, you are in terms of a business you should always look to be compliant um so we're going to look through what what we consider the, the the five top liabilities um and and it's something you know like i say it, whilst it is something we spot through due diligence and it can go to price it can go to reputation you know kind of it can have a significant impact on a deal or, or even cause a deal to fall over um what what we do find is that actually um you know kind of there are lots of businesses out there not complying with legislation you know kind of often you know, without any kind of knowledge that there's no deliberate act by an organization not to comply with legislation it, it is such that the world evolves employment legislation changes more often um, than than some areas and businesses you know probably head down focused on on delivering their core services or their core product um you know kind of so the the employment issues don't really rear their ugly heads until such time as uh, you know kind of you are in a due diligence exercise or uh, you know kind of a claims raised or an issue is brought to an attention by an employee. So let's let's get going with with what they are. And Amy, what would you say is the one of the first or so one of five liabilities yeah. that often crop up? Um so one that I find comes up quite a lot and actually just from recent deals over the past few weeks that I've been helping with, we've we've had this issue is where there's ongoing disputes or disciplinary and grievance matters and potentially those last minute levers. So employees who are leaving employment um, and we get told kind of out of the blue <laughs> that that's happening. Um, so I suppose taking kind of the the ongoing disputes or disciplinary and grievance first, um, employers I just think they just need to ensure they've been dealt with fairly it's pretty textbook stuff and I know sort of without trying to to teach anybody here how to suck eggs it's it's just important that you've got that fair process especially for those employees that may have over that that magic two years service where there's a bit more of a risk if it results in dismissal um, and following the ACAS guidance and codes where that's applicable especially for disciplinary and grievance. Um, paper trail's key so like if we are helping the corporate team on a due diligence exercise and we find out through questions that we've asked that there is an ongoing disciplinary or somebody is on their final warning or we want to see that a process has been followed and in order the, the easiest way to show the buyer or the buyer's lawyers that a process has been followed 
is to have a paper trail and have all the documents in place and it makes it fairly easy then to go look here's everything take a look you'll see that we've we've done what we needed to do um and i think as well it will minimize the amount of questions that a potential buyer might need to ask as well and and kind of minimize your work because you've got it all there ready you don't have to kind of scramble back especially if something happened a few months ago or, or six months before the sale it might be that the memories have faded a little bit since then so if you've got everything documented then that's great and you sort of don't have to try and remember everything um if matters have resulted i suppose in employees resigning um or dismissals if it was a disciplinary situation potentially paper trail again will be key um because all the buyer wants to do in these situations is assess the risk is there a risk if they take on this business that they're going to end up with a claim or some liability in respect of that employee um and if you I suppose looking at it from the seller's side, have followed a fair process, have put everything in place that you should have done. The risk is minimised then. And it's it's difficult to eradicate all risk with employment, as we probably tell quite a few clients, is you can do as much as you can to minimise it. And I think that's what the buyers will want to see. They will want to have the comfort that the proper process was followed. Um, I talked about um, those last minute levers earlier. So that tends to be something we see where people are, are kind of resigning out of the blue. And it might be for a completely innocent reason they just deciding for a, to have a change of pace or a different career or they've gone somewhere else um, but equally it's just to be if that happens in the midst of a sale or in the lead up of a sale just be honest about it with the buyer and just explain what you know about the situation if that employee's not raised any issues beforehand or there's nothing kind of underlying with that resignation it's probably fine and it's probably low risk but I think we find it just kind of landing quite late in the process sometimes and we find out and then if we're acting for a buyer you don't necessarily have much choice but to look at what protection you might need because we don't have the information so just if things like that happen again just just have a look at it and and keep a note of why people are leaving and and make sure that if there are any issues is there anything you can do to kind of resolve them or, or minimize the risk around that um and I think as well it's just It just is from an information point of view, the buyer won't need to ask as many questions. If you're on the sell side, you won't need to um, necessarily kind of go back and try and remember things. It just makes the process a lot smoother, really, when these issues come up. Yeah, and I I guess what I'd add as well to that, Amy, is when when you do a a corporate due diligence exercise, there's often a materiality threshold. Absolutely, yeah. And very, very often an employment dispute won't necessarily meet that threshold but there's a certain emotion attached to the employment side of things and you know let's be honest the employees make make the company work so you know kind of it is often very important that you know kind of these relations are in a in a good place and and, in a good shape and obviously in order to do that in order to foster that culture you need to make sure that if people raise grievances they're dealt with properly you know, kind of if there needs to be a disciplinary or there needs to be a capability issue, that's managed. Um, it, yeah. and it's managed in, in a proper way. So, yeah, I think that's obviously key because because of how important the workforce is to a to an organisation's output. So, um, holiday pay um, it, it's an issue that's been on you know kind of employment lawyers' radar for what seems like years and years and years now. Um and and but but unfortunately it's amazing how many organizations still don't necessarily pay their workers the correct holiday pay. Um you know kind of and 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 generally any kind of variable pay, whether that's overtime payments, whether that's commission that are that are paid regularly or bonuses, then 
they need to be included in in the calculation of holiday pay um and and equally the reference period was was something that was you know kind of until fairly recently april um last year mm. which <laughs> feels recent but it's obviously not that recent yeah. now but um so yeah effectively the 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 reference period is now 52 weeks so you go back over and, and look at the, the previous 52 weeks earnings to to calculate what what the proper holiday pay should be um why is that an issue well a, again from a from an individual perspective it's probably not likely to be that big a claim but when you multiply that by 100 200 500 employees then then that liability is something that can be a concern to a business uh, that's looking to to acquire you know kind of if it's a if it's a share acquisition then you know kind of the the share the new shareholders are going to step into the shoes and and potentially be on the hook for that liability if there's a business and assets transfer and there's a cheaper transfer then those liabilities go with the employees um and and the other concern for for most buyers is well we're going to have to correct this and when we correct it that in itself is going to tell the workforce it's tipping them off a bit yeah yeah that, that, <laughs> that they haven't been paid correctly previously so in them coming in and doing things properly they're potentially exposing themselves to claims and everything so you know kind of often indemnities have to be written in um so yeah certainly something that organizations that you know should be doing generally you know to to pay the workers correctly um but certainly in 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 times of of acquisition or sales then then absolutely it's something that needs to be done correctly um the the other one amy for me as well mm. which is a big one is is immigration right to work checks would, yeah would I would agree. Holiday pay and right to work checks are very, very common. I see them a lot when I'm sort of doing the due diligence exercise. And yeah, the right to work checks, it's it's sometimes the lack of um, within the businesses, which uh, I suppose if you are an employer and you employ somebody who doesn't have the right to work and you've not adequately checked to see if they have the right to work, there are really hefty fines that, that an employer could get. So they can get a civil fine of up to £20,000 per illegal immigrant um, and also um, an individual or like the director of the company for example could be on the hook for criminal liability for not doing it if they knowingly employ somebody who doesn't have the right to work and that could actually be result in a prison sentence for example so it can be really really serious this topic um, so it's crucial that employers are carrying out the correct checks um, and I mean the Home Office has plenty of guidance on this um, we're here with guidance we have lots on our website as well to give employers kind of a steer of what they need to do um, I suppose if the if the sale itself so we're talking I suppose kind of about sort of share sales predominantly but if it's a business sale or an asset sale um, and we've got Chupi applying um, another favourite topic um, then buyers on that transfer so who um, inherit all of the employees when they've transferred actually get a grace period of around 60 days after the transfer um, in which time they can carry out appropriate checks on the employees and if they do the checks within that time frame um, they get the statutory excuse like you would when you normally do the checks at the start of employment um, so the original documents should 
be checked as well just to make sure that you have to keep records so if you are on the seller side of a, of a transaction don't necessarily be surprised if the buyer's asking you even for a sample of anonymized checks just to see that you've actually done it um, because part of the checking is to retain a copy so you should have that on file um, and I think if you are looking to get your business prepped for sale or just generally thinking about your right to work checks, we might have just prompted you to think about that. Um, consider doing an audit, just do an audit of what you have got on record, how you do your tra- checks, what your process is. Do you have a process in place? Do you have a checklist in place? Um, and go from there, really, because that will give you a good overview of of what you're doing right and potentially where you could improve. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, it, it is a, a very serious issue that um, you know, kind of as soon as you start talking about criminal prosecution, yeah, scary you know, word. Kind of, yeah <laughs> it, it is scary. And, and in a share acquisition, you know, kind of it, it, you can't contract out of that. You know, kind of yeah. the, these directors will be coming in, shareholders, and, and potentially that liability is there. Um, you know, you can get an indemnity to cover off any civil liabilities, fines, and everything else. But what you can't kind of protect yourself against in in the context of a share acquisition is that criminal liability mm-hmm. and and the other uh, liability which is key to to any kind of investors or you know kind of organizations looking to to come in and buy in a, a company is the reputational damage that has yes, you know, kind of, we're, we're in a in a time unfortunately where you know kind of labor is a is it, it's, it's a hard resource to get hold of good labor you know kind of there's lots of individuals looking to to change their roles and everything else and you know so if you make it harder for yourself as a as a business to to recruit um good staff and 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 having these kind of adverse publicity um about the organization would, would do that um you know kind of it is to some extent handicapping the organization itself so absolutely a, a key issue to be aware of um another one that often crops up is is worker status um lots of people will see in the news you know the the uber cases you know kind of and and, and that you know kind of it is something which lots of businesses face perhaps not on the scale of uber because of the nature of their business but you know kind of organizations do often engage contractors um again often in the IT space and and the question comes down to well what what is this individual are they an employee are they a worker are they kind of something in between are they genuinely self-employed should IR35 be at play here um you know kind of and often again when you do that due diligence exercise the organization isn't clear on on exactly what 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 the position is um you know so to the extent that a paper trail can be done an audit can be done to you know to make sure things like status determinations of of these individuals then you know kind of that is it's a live issue for any business all the time because of the rights which are associated with different worker statuses um but certainly in the context of a, of a um you know, due diligence exercise, this this will be something that comes under the spotlight. So um organizations should should make efforts to uh to get their house in order, so to speak. Um and I guess house in order, uh <laughs> compliance, um mm-hmm. 
section one Amy is that something that you regularly have to report on it, it is yeah and um it's it's one of those ones where it's probably being in breach of the employment rights act so not having your employment contracts containing all of the relevant particulars that you're supposed to under section one of the employment rights act it's in itself it's probably quite low risk i mean if you've got an employment contract in the first place that's great because you've got something in place we have seen businesses before that don't have any written agreements in place with their um, employees which is slightly more worrying um i mean i find a lot at the moment so we had i, I kind of call it you've got the like original section one particulars which came in with the employment rights act section one and then it got amended um in april 2020 and we've got these additional particulars now that we have to include things like like training, uh, other paid leave, other benefits, like probationary period. And also what I find interesting is you have to say if something doesn't apply, for example, a probationary period, the legislation stipulates that you should say no probationary period applies to this employment. So you actually have to state the negative in there as well. And we find that a lot of people's template contracts maybe don't have all of those new um, particulars in there, which I suppose what's the risk of that? Um, I mean, an employee could bring a claim that they haven't got a compliant statement um, in line with section one, but they would either receive a declaration from the tribunal basically saying what should be in there or you need to go change that um, employer, make it better. Or they could receive compensation, but that's only if they are successful in another substantive employment claim, such as unfair dismissal. Um, And it will be two to four weeks pay at the statutory cap. So at the most, you're probably, if they did get four weeks pay, which I think is probably in extreme circumstances where you don't have any contract in place um you are looking at probably just over sort of two thousand pounds maybe just just a little bit more than that so on its own it's fairly low risk um i mean i suppose if you had lots of employees that didn't have compliant contracts and then they all brought some type of mass litigation and added on that as an additional claim then yeah they could sort of add up and be quite costly but i think as well just from a from a kind of like you say house and order perspective it it just it probably gives good signs to a buyer if you are compliant and you have got a contract that's up to date it shows that you're kind of caring about that focusing on that and making sure that that everything is is okay and and following on from that I suppose what we see in contracts as well I see quite a lot um data protection clauses that still refer to the data protection act 1998 um which obviously now we've got the data protection act 2018 the UK GDPR um I see a lot of contracts referring to relying on consent to process employee data which the UK GDPR kind of sort of gets us to steer away from that now in an employment context because an employee could withdraw consent firstly, which would cause an employer massive issues <laughs> to continue employing them. Um, and also there's an argument that there's a bit of an imbalance between an employer and an employee. And actually, if you ask an employee to consent, it's more than likely they're going to say yes because you're their employer and they're not going to want to do something that's going to upset their employer and go against them. So it's just checking that as well, making sure that if you're referencing any legislation or anything from like a data protection point of view in your contracts or even your handbook as well and your policies, are they up to date? Um, and I think just my final point, just on the topic of contracts generally, is restricted covenants. So I see quite a lot. We get like template contracts through um, or we get copies of, they, say, the template contracts, maybe the senior management team contracts. And everybody has the same restrictions for the same length of time. And typically with post-termination restrictions, we, 
they should really be tailored to each individual role. Um, you should look at the different types of information, relationships that each person will have. And really, I think in most businesses, they probably will differ or need to differ per role with the type of protection you need. If you go too far and just have blanket restrictions that don't necessarily mean anything to a certain role, it could mean that actually they're found unenforceable if they're ever challenged, which leaves the business unprotected, which is obviously not what anybody wants. So again, I suppose if you are building up to a sale or just generally thinking about looking at your contracts, again, if we've kind of prompted you to think, well, actually, I'm not sure if it's uh, Section 1 compliant, just have a review of them just check that you've got everything you need in there and everything's up to date um and i suppose that should be an ongoing process really sort of year in year out as new things come in and new legislation comes in yeah and and, and what i'd say as well Amy, is lots of hr people that i speak to that they, they want contracts to all look the same they want a harmonization, so to speak um in, in terms of the, the t's and c's that are within the workforce Section one is a great excuse yeah. to, to achieve that and, and not to have contracts that, you know, kind of look like the dog has eaten them three times <laughs> from, you know, 1989 or whatever, you know, kind of which yeah. are way out of date, you know, so it, it gives HR teams, it gives organizations the perfect opportunity to, um, you know, to say, oh, okay, okay, yeah, we need to make these compliant with section one. So, this is what our new template looks like mm -hmm. and this is what we're going to get everybody to sign up to. So, um, you know, kind of that's often something that organisations want to do post-acquisition and, and to the extent that there's been a tupy transfer, that yeah. becomes more of a challenge. Um, mm -hmm. So if you can can do that and have that, again, that that's something that is um, quite an attractive option. So, yeah, lot, lots of things, I guess, that, that flow from Section 1 and like you say, not necessarily... Um, because there's a huge risk in terms of the claim. But I, I think the other issues that flow from them are are always important to a mm. business. So it's so worth, um, you know, kind of doing that audit and making sure that your organisation is compliant. The, the only final issue that I wanted to flag, and it's not something that comes up very regularly, but it, but it is something that can be, um, you know, go to price and go to reputation, um, is national minimum wage. Uh, everybody kind of is aware of the national minimum wage and, 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 and aware that and, you know, those payments need to go up on an annual basis. Um, but there is often where I find that there are breaches of the national minimum wage legislation is, is where there's technical breaches. Um, mm. You know, kind of hotel staff may have to um, wear a certain uniform or wear a certain type of clothes and they have to pay for that in their first pay period that technically takes them underneath um, the national minimum wage for the purposes of, of that pay period. And it, it's those kind of techie issues that sometimes get forgotten about and, and equally can lead to an organisation being named and shamed, um, which again is, isn't good for reputation. You know, kind of you've seen some of the, the big football clubs, I think Manchester City, who who pay out an absolute fortune to the to the players. Uh, were named and shamed as, as as being, you know, kind of an organisation that doesn't pay national minimum wage. Um, you know, kind of, and and it's those kind of things that are a little bit of an embarrassment um, to an organisation. So certainly something to be aware to be aware of. Um, 
I was going to say, Andy, as well, sorry, just before you kind of conclude with the national minimum wage as well, do you see that come up sometimes in the context of maybe directors who are employed in the business where they might have quite a low salary because they get dividends as well from the company, but actually dividends themselves wouldn't necessarily count towards national minimum wage. So we do find that happens sometimes that there's a little bit of an imbalance whilst the director is receiving a large sum overall, the actual proportion of that that is contributed to salary is not enough to meet the yeah. threshold so that tends to be a common one I see yeah no I agree um and and I guess lots of things we've talked about today and you know kind of the our I, I like to think you know when you're tuning in and listening our style isn't to plug all the work which we do and can do for organizations but certainly in this particular area it may be something that that you want to kind of do an audit you want to pick our brains on so you know do feel free to get in touch um you know kind of most most of these things in terms of making the amendments that 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 are needed or are necessary can be can be done on a fixed fee and is, is something that you know shoesmiths would would be very happy to assist with so you know kind of do reach out um let us know if, if you need any support in that area or if you've got any other um issues that that you want to flag with us um so that we can share with our listeners in terms of common things that, mm. that you see where the organizations aren't necessarily compliant you know usual method is is best shoe speak hr at shoesmiths.co.uk um but thanks for that amy um, thanks andy that's great thank you to all to you all for listening and we'll look forward to uh speaking again soon